Welcome to What's So Funny, a comedy podcast where we talk about some of the most influential and controversial comedians from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Sit back, relax, and get ready to laugh. Here's your host, Dave Swanson. Hi, welcome back to What's So Funny. I'm your host, Dave Schwenson, and today I'm joined by two good friends, Kelly Thulis. Hello. So good to hear your voice and the welcome back, and we're going to have some fun today. Oh, oh, I'm excited. And speaking of fun, Tom McGallis is with us. Oh, man, I just woke up. Thanks, guys, for calling me. <laughs> don't for be, going. Tom, don't be lying. Don't be, you're an artist. I know you create things. You create stories. You've been up, I saw you on Facebook already this yeah, morning. Yeah, What is it, make hay while the sun is down or shines? Something, I don't know what it is, but it's one of those things Kelly knows. Kelly knows the sayings. Oh, Tom, oh, yeah, go back to yeah, bed. Yeah, sure. <laughs> go back to bed. <laughs> what's going, Kelly, what's new? What's happening? Oh, you know, not much. Just working on material, and um, I'm excited about this episode, though. I can't even... Oh, wait till I'm people... I'm excited about this episode. Wait till our listeners find out who we're talking about today. But, Tom, what have you been up to? Hey, you know, just still making art. Shameless plug, TomMcGallis.com. <laughs> oh, my God, that was shameless. I can't yeah, believe you shameless. pulled it. Shameless. You snuck shameless. that in there. Yes, shameless. it was shameless. Why do people say that? You got to stay busy, guys. You know that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Idle hands are the devil's... What is the saying again, Kelly? See, you uh, have the same. Idle hands make the straw come out with the sun. I think something. That's uh, it. <laughs> I, idle hands make for bored listeners. We're yeah. going to get canceled yeah. unless oh, you guys yeah, change yeah. the topic. What are, yeah, what are they tuning in for? Not not this jib jab. <laughs> well, guess what we're talking. Guess who we're talking about today? I mean, talk about a legendary comedian. Yeah. Talk about the pressure is on because I do not us. want to oh. mess this one up at all. We're going to talk about the great Richard Pryor. Man, yeah, loaded plate. Yeah, definitely a lot to say. I mean, talk about one of the most inspiring comedians for so many of the comics out today. Groundbreaking, legendary. I mean, come mm-hmm. on. This Richard Pryor was, when Comedy Central did their list of the top comedians of all time, he was number one. And the same thing with Rolling Stone. When they listed the top comedians, Richard Pryor is number one. So here we go. You know what? I honestly think he is so, you know, I mean, just so top level. I think if you go back and listen to every single episode we have done, I feel like we've mentioned him in every single one. I mean, You're he's probably just, right. Yes. Yeah, he's just everywhere. He inspired so many comedians. I mean, he just was really top level. He was raised by his grandmother in a brothel. Okay. She owned it. She owned it. She brothel. owned it. Yeah, she, <laughs> she owned it. She was an it. entrepreneur. The family uh-huh. business. <laughs> and they must have done pretty well because they were one of the earlier families to have a television. So he got to watch Ed Sullivan and some of these shows as a kid. And he said that's what he wanted to do. And his mother worked in the brothel. And uh, his father was just a real hustler about town. And Richard was kind of a rough guy. I know he got thrown out of school. He, he eventually, I think he took a swing at a teacher and just different things as a way to get him to show up. At school, when he was very young, the teacher decided she noticed that he liked to make the other kids laugh. So she said, if you come into class, I'll give you, on Friday afternoons before the end, the end bell, I'll give you like five or ten minutes in front of class to do comedy. And that's how he started. And he used to, he would watch the comedians on Ed Sullivan. And he would learn their acts and he would do it. And the kids all thought he was writing this stuff. And then all of a sudden, the other kids started getting TV, and they started watching the Ed Sullivan show. And they would come in Monday and say, hey, we saw this guy at Ed Sullivan, and here's his jokes. And he's like, that's my act. (laughs) (laughs) 
But uh, yeah, he quit school. He actually with, was with a gang and he broke into people's houses and stuff. And I think one of the, Johnny Carson or something asked him one time, how long were you a thief? He said, till my dad found out. <laughs> but, That's wild because I think, I think that was a continual thing in his life, right? He was sort of this... You don't want to say thief, but I mean, he did a little bit of jail time here and there. Yes, he <laughs> did. Certainly mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh, he did. Yes, he did. Like 35 days in the cooler for a little bit of violence and whatever he did there. But, you know, he learned from the streets. He was, yes. that was, that was it, mm-hmm. always in him, always in him. I think well, he, brewing. Yeah. And he, you know what? I mean, he just had no escape at that time because, I mean, like we mentioned before, his home was a brothel. Mm-hmm. You go out in the streets and, you know, he gets into whatever. He's just, there was no no escape really for him. Well, he um, found I guess one. Until there was, he found comedy. There was, there was like a small, like a theatrical company. I don't know if this was in a school or a performing arts center, something in Peoria. And he showed up. And he fell in love with acting. You know, I think Richard probably, people don't, may not understand this. Originally, you know, he fell in love with acting. He wanted to be a movie star. A little like George Carlin. You could see some similarities. Yeah, he would dig around the uh, old, uh, old movie posters in the trash outside the movie theaters in Peoria. And he would hang those on his wall. And he would put his name on there <laughs> as if wow. he were the star of the movie. And so he fell in love with acting. So he started doing these roles and people thought he was just great. Again, I'm talking too much, and I apologize for this because I'm just such a huge Richard oh Pryor fan. Right. You know? okay. he, he's but just, the just guy, the, man. <laughs> just the background of this guy, but he had to, his dad said he had to get a job if he was going to quit school. So he got a job in, a, I think, like a slaughterhouse or something like that. And he realized, oh, my gosh, five days a week doing this? No way. But he got a job in a, in a local nightclub singing. He was a singer. Wow. And he played the piano. He couldn't play the piano. He lied. <laughs> he knew a couple chords, but he would do jokes, and they I'll made him the, the house MC. Hey, you know, I, I think that continued. I think the guy was—I I think he was a great actor. I mean, I mean, he really—I, you know, he could have just continued to be a great actor. I believe. Well, you watch his stand-up comedy too. He does characters. I mean, he is acting the whole time. He's—that's when he is really the Richard Pryor that people think about. He does these characters and he becomes them. They're so deep. He goes in deep, man, you know? You know, it's kind of interesting though, because because he does so many characters in his act. When I watch a film that he's in, although he is a fantastic actor, I mean, he really truly is great. I still look at him and I go, oh, there's Richard Pryor. You know, like <laughs> I, don't, I don't completely lose myself in the character and believe, oh, well, that's, you know, whatever. It's, it's like, oh, there's Richard Pryor working with Gene Kelly or Gene Kelly, <laughs> Gene Wilder. I don't quite lose him, but it's still, I mean, it's amazing performances all around. Well, he took those characters he knew in Peoria and he saw on the streets. And we were talking about, you know, the prostitutes and the drug addicts, mm-hmm. and the, the scammers and the thieves and, and the whole bit. And he took those on the stage. And that's what he was doing. You know, he would become those characters. And that's what separated him from everyone else. And, you know, they even did it early. When you see this stuff before 67, he's still very funny and very successful. But I always found it amazing that he walks away from that act in, I think it was September 67, he had an epiphany at the Aladdin Hotel. Do you you guys ever like look at that, that where he was performing in front of the Rat Pack? And yeah. he immediately said he looked through the eyes of like Dean Martin and he was embarrassed. He said, I'm I'm up here like a little clown, a ridiculous person. <laughs> and he changed his act from that day. He said, I, I just can't do this anymore. Even though he was successful and funny, 
he became the Richard that we knew in the 70s, mm-hmm. which was totally different, which was those characters you're talking about. If we're talking about a style, right? He sort of developed another kind of style of character-driven comedy, you know. Yeah, he wanted to make it big. When he left Peoria, he told everyone, I'm going to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. And they were all like, yeah, right. And uh, he took off to New York City with something like 10 bucks in his pocket. Either he read an article or he saw a clip on television of Bill Cosby, who was just breaking at that point. So that had to be like around 1963, 1964. And he said, oh my gosh, this guy's doing what I planned to do. Yeah, he was hanging around the village and he was performing with Bob Dylan and Woody Allen. Bill Cosby would be down the street. George Carlin would be at the other end of the street. They're all there in the That's village awesome, doing this. That's awesome, man. Which I hear Cosby, though, did not like him at all because they had such similar acts. He thought Pryor was stealing from him. He was. <laughs> did Cosby say that? <laughs> he was stealing, but I wonder, did Cosby actually voice that? I didn't see that. Ever. Wow, that's like, From what I've heard, hey, yeah, you're taking yeah, my he, act, man. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't like care wow. for him. Wow. There are specific examples. If Bill Cosby talked about, I don't know, his mother-in-law, Richard Pryor would talk about his father-in-law. It was like that <laughs> close. It was that close. He'd, he'd go down and watch Bill Cosby, what he's doing, and then he would write an act, you know, based on similar. Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was keeping it clean, so he was like, he was like, so when he first did the Ed Sullivan show, he was like Bill Cosby. Absolutely, yeah. And on Merv Griffin, he did a lot of the Merv stuff, a lot of it. And he, they loved him. He was like the house comic for a while. And it was very fun. It was funny, but it was, yeah, I could see that Bill Cosby would be a little PO'd about this. Yeah, well, here's, <laughs> here's something else. His television debut was on a show called On Broadway Tonight. And it was hosted by Rudy Valley. Do you know who Rudy Valley is? No, Rudy Valley. He's that guy from the 1920s, 1930s. He used to sing through a megaphone. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, yeah. He had to be 100 years old. You oh, know, my This God. is like in the 60s. He had his own variety show. It was a summer replacement show, and Richard Pryor went on. And he was That's excited. Insane. It was his national television debut. So he called up to get his family to watch. He called Peoria. And his grandfather picked up the phone and heard his voice and thought he was calling to borrow more money. So he hung <laughs> up on him. <laughs> yeah. So nobody in his family got to watch him. They didn't know oh, he wow. was on. It was something like within the year, nine months later, something he made his debut on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they all watched it. So that was his big deal. It's interesting, though, the early, I'm just trying to think of like from 67 to the early 70s, you know, what was really going on or how much time he needed to develop this new persona, this new style, this new Richard, this honest, personal Richard that we then saw on SNL in 75. And, and you know, I got to tell you, you know, I'm certainly old enough to remember when those albums started hitting in the 70s that it was monumental. I mean, these were like, there's nothing that compares to today. When those came out, we all would sit around listening to them going, oh my God, this is amazing. And so he was all of a sudden reaching, I think, black audience and white people, white kids, who were just like, you know, we had never heard that. We never heard the, the, the language of the streets and the characters of Mudbone and these characters, which were just unbelievable. There's nobody today, I think, that even compares to that kind of impact. He was huge in the 70s. I mean, it was just ma- not as huge in the, in the 60s. And the 70s were, was his period where it was just explosion. You know, he wanted the fame and he wanted to be a movie star. So he played it like the Bill Cosby thing. And um, 
His first booking he did in Las Vegas. I think Bobby Darren, one of the singers from the 60s, oh, yeah. saw him and said, hey, you'd be my opening act. And they paid him like thousands of dollars a week like they do in Vegas. And he was <laughs> like, talk about drug binging and showgirls and alcohol and boozing it up. He lived, he loved Vegas. Sin City. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Matter of fact, he was on one of his binges and he missed an appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. So it was surprising Ed even had him come back. That was, like you said, Tom, when he was performing out there in front of the Rat Pack, about 67, 68, he went on stage. All he said was, what the blank am I doing here? And turn around, and everybody was totally shocked. He walked off stage. If he would have continued tr- that trajectory, I don't think we'd be talking about him as much as we do now. No, no, um, no. Because he, I think the difference is, and why he really appeals to me a lot, is that he transcended. He became very personal, very honest, very open. It became art. Mm-hmm. Whereas the stuff he was doing then was kind of, you know, it was entertainment, which is great. That's fine. But it's not art. It's not like personal and deep and like mining your own life, which he did. And that's and opened up this world where you go, oh, man, this is real and this is raw and this is funny and like personal. And I think that that's why he, his appeal went to another level. Right. And it wasn't a copycat of... of- you know, Bill Cosby either anymore. Who was great? Bill Bill was great. At right? the time, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that he really, he hated catering to white audiences. He hated just doing that persona. It got to the point where he was done with it. And it's a true lesson for all comedians out there where it's, you know, yes, you can do characters on stage, but it all still has to really be grounded in yourself and your own voice. And that's sort of the the area you're going to find success in. If, if you're not, if you're up there just doing some other person's act, if you're, you're not being true to yourself and what you think is funny, it's never going to play. And that's sort of the lesson that he That's he interesting, Kelly, at. you're bringing it up like that. Because I'll tell you how I look at Richard Pryor when it comes sure. to the comedy business industry, whatever you want to call it. He's like an old blues singer to me. Or, when, okay, let me put the, you know, I, you know I relate comedy to music a lot, okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Richard Pryor is Led Zeppelin. Richard Pryor is the Rolling Stones, okay? Those bands took like the old blues music of Robert Johnson and all these guys, and they redid it, you know, and they came out with their own sound. You know, Richard Pryor, you go back to the, he was on the Chitlin circuit. Black clubs, white clubs, you didn't cross over until Dick Gregory did it in the early 60s. But Richard Pryor was doing the acts of, the Chillin' Circuit comics that he heard, too. He was really doing it, but he expanded on it. And so when he saw these characters, like Mudbone, okay, the drunk guy, the old guy, and and he was bringing that, expressing what was going on in real life in that era, in those Mm -hmm. theaters, in those neighborhoods, and he was bringing that to the stage. That's how I look at Richard Pryor. Well, that's the problem, I think, when you look at some of his comedy, now, albums, and people that are going to look at the specials, you know, the Sunset stand-up special that uh, we're going to kind of focus on a little bit today, which the one he did in 1982, you know, it was this personal, man, this personal stuff that was like, I saw that movie in 82. I went to see it, you know, in the theater. It literally was jaw-dropping. I think anybody that was watching it then was just amazed. It was just unbelievable. He's imitating a cheetah. He's imitating, you know, uh-huh. all these inanimate objects and and this. And he's playing all these parts. And he's so likable in like a with that little Charlie Chaplin smile and he, his little laugh that he did. It was just, um, you know, he mentioned like the the rock stars. He was a true rock star at that point. It was like I remember going with my buddies to watch this, this 
in the theater and it was like, holy crap, <laughs> what did we just see? <laughs> Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Well, you know, he pretty much invented the stand-up comedy movies. He's the first one. I know he did one early, like in 1971. Um, I don't know, was that called Live and Smoking? I don't remember. He played all the parts in those movies, in his stand-up. You know, he was able to be the director and all that up on the stage, and it was just total theatrical. And like you brought up, like he played a cheetah and everything. He played oh my all those. Gosh. That's what separated him. He played a crack pipe. He played his penis. He played whatever. <laughs> he played everything. He played he did. everything. And it's I think amazing. he was more comfortable doing that rather than being himself. And you watch the interviews with him on, say, the old ones. They're online, but Johnny Carson, David Letterman, and stuff. You know, he'll sit there. He's kind of a shy, quiet guy. But then he'll put on a character, and he becomes that character. His voice mm-hmm. goes up higher, and he becomes the Richard Pryor we know from the movies. So I think that was his his talent. I mean, I think that's how he expressed himself as maybe someone else, as a character. You know, I had a, I had the uh, good fortune when I was doing radio to interview Paul Mooney, and w- who you may know, Dave, right? Yes, he performed at the Improv when I was managing. Yes, a few times. So, and and Paul was candid, you know, like kind of off mic, a little bit on mic, but then he, when he was talking to me, because I was asking about Richard Pryor, because he wrote a lot of Pryor's stuff, especially for SNL. And so I was asking him about that and how much they were afraid to, to, they wanted Richard to be there, but they were frightened of him. And NBC invented the seven second delay because of Richard. (laughs) Yes. So that was invented to stop him from, we want him. Lauren Michaels wanted Richard to be on the show so bad but they were like, we can't trust him. We can't. What's he going to do? Well, you know what's so interesting? So there, he had a show, I believe it was. Oh, yeah, it was, it was on NBC briefly. He had like a, a sort of variety show. Yeah, the Richard and Pryor show. And it only show. lasted seven episodes because of that issue. And there's this great clip, I believe it's out on YouTube, where it's like a part of the episode. It probably was the last one where it's just Richard Pryor delivering a monologue. And then all of a sudden the voiceover cuts in and it's like, this is a representative from NBC. We can no longer show the audio (laughs) portion of this. And then, I mean, he just starts going like, let me translate for you in an NBC way. Golly gee, everything's great. And you just see Richard Pryor just getting like angrier and angrier, jumping up and down, you know, like, it's just, it's great. It's so good. So even like, that exit of that show, it clearly wasn't working, and and they both were in on that, and I love it. It's such a fun thing. That's great. That's great. 
Yeah, but Richard Pryor, I mean, he had this reputation. He was getting real famous. That's why NBC gave him his own variety show. I mean, I look back at it now, I'm like, what are you, nuts? You know, Richard Pryor, Pryor. And I think he came on like at eight o'clock at night or something, family viewing, and he got Richard Pryor. But, you know, he made his mark when he started changing. A lot of people don't know that he was one of the co-writers for Blazing Saddles. That's right. The Mel Brooks movie. But, you know, Richard wrote a lot of stuff. He won an Emmy for writing uh, Lily Tomlin's uh, special. So mm-hmm. he wrote a lot. He worked um, on Sanford and Son too, which yeah. isn't that that's crazy, right? I think he's also, you know, oh, that you brought up Sanford Son. That reminds me of another Richard Pryor story that's pretty well known. You know, when he did the Ed Sullivan Show and all this stuff in the '60s or whatever, and he was everybody down in the village in New York City knew who he was, Richard Pryor. But he went up to Harlem one afternoon to meet his friend Red Fox, who was big on the Chitlin circuit with the black audiences. Oh, and they, yeah. they walked down 125th Street together. And But it wasn't that people were coming out to see Richard Pryor, that they watched him on the Ed Sullivan Show. They could care less. It was Red Fox. And they were running out to say Red <laughs> wow. Fox. Or they were coming out of the restaurants and the stores. And Richard Pryor was like, they didn't even recognize him. And he thought, you know, he wanted that with his own community, with the black audiences. He wanted that. You know, we're kind of focusing. We're supposed to on the, on the album, like, Live on the Sunset Strip. They shot... The Live on the Sunset Strip, they did two nights. They were going to do one, but the first night kind of bombed. I heard something like that. Yeah. I don't know if you, Kelly, did you hear that? It was, it I was kind of. I heard that. No. Was that? I heard it somewhere that it didn't work and they did, and he, they, he was off. And because he had not been doing a lot of stand up, I think, because he was, he was burned two years before that. And I think it took a while to heal. And then the second night was legendary. Well, the TV special and the album were combined from two different performances, I'm pretty sure. The Live on Sunset Street? Yeah, I think it was two different nights. I listened to the album recently, and it, I think it says, you know, you know with this, certain clips, cuts, whatever you want to call them, tracks, were recorded, said recorded at this place, recorded at this place, you know, on such and such a date. Then there'd be other tracks saying recorded at a different place and a different date. I don't have that info. They in front did of do me. two nights, so you know, as long as, long as you wore the same suit, you could cut them. You know? <laughs> well, and and that's a little a uh, little secret for our listeners who aren't quite involved in comedy. That that often happens. They they will record multiple nights and then you know splice it together. It's just some jokes are told better one night than another. Or you know, with him, he was such a, a you know just a fire canyon. I mean, you just never knew he was explosive. You didn't know what was going to come out of him. Maybe some things were not going to be able to be released. So they had to record both nights. Like, we just don't know. But I I do, I could see easily where his first performance of it would have been a rough one. He hadn't performed since he set himself on fire. And that was a big deal. Like, it wasn't just a little fire. I mean, he almost died. Like, he had a one in three chance to live. Yeah. We all thought, I mean, you know, it was 1980. Again, I remember we all thought he's dead. Mm -hmm. Richard's going to die. And it was uh, devastating. I mean, it was like, oh my, what? What? I mean, everybody was talking about it. And then he didn't die. And he said he kind of had a, you know, a crack pipe incident. But then later, other people said, no, he actually poured the rum on himself and lit himself because he was watching some night or a Vietnam special and there was that monk who burned himself and I think it inspired him and he was on drugs and he just said here you go and the next thing he's running a mile down the road on, on fire. fire yeah yeah he was so, afraid mm-hmm. to stop he said I can't stop or I'll die he was trying to run to the hospital and I think the police finally threw him in a car oh and got God. him to the hospital but the I saw a 
we're talking about. He he did not take that much time off. I mean, he did to recover, and he talks about this. I mean, some of the stuff he had to go through was just awful. But yeah, he was laying in bed all bandaged up, and they had the TV on, and he's watching it, and it said Richard Pryor died. And he's like, no, 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 yeah, live on the Sunset Strip. Some amazing bits on that, man. Oh, it's, yeah. Anybody that loves stand-up should just really watch that. Forget about people that have ripped him off a little bit. You know, these gestures or mannerisms or mm-hmm. talking like a white person, which he's the first guy to really do in that way. And just uh, look at it as like, man, this is happening in 1982 before before a lot of these comics, before, you know, Chappelle, before certainly Eddie Murphy, I mean, pretty much lifted a lot of what Richard I, well, they I were think, all you know, you know they, they were all inspired yeah you know, they were Chris Rock yeah and you know Dave Chappelle and I mean they all point to Richard Pryor mm-hmm. oh, who, do, who and, couldn't and, everybody yeah. does I think he influenced I think everybody <laughs> and, and Pryor can point to Bill Cosby can point to Dick Gregory you know and Red Fox and it goes back like I said they all influenced each other but you know it's like and it's amazing this happened at the same time maybe it was just because of the atmosphere in the country or what was going on but Richard Pryor and George Carlin both around the same time were these Bill Cosby-like wearing suit kind of comics were ha-ha, very funny, we're on the Ed Sullivan show. Then they both broke out into like the counterculture, whatever you want to call it. You know, Carlin went like with the hippies and Pryor went to the streets. Yeah, well, that was the era too. I mean, Vietnam and political comedy, it was, it was a darker time, kind of like now. <laughs> Thanks for reminding us. So, yeah. so Kelly, you know, yeah, it's like, I mean, and people are, you know, uh, that are taking the stage now, there's a lot to talk about. You know, there's a lot of things that are, but like you said, uh, Kelly, you, you know, you, you should always kind of mine your own life, right? Yeah. Just dig into your own being and your own life and tell your story. Right. Even if you're telling, you know, if you're doing political humor or something like that, that's not your personal story or whatever, it's still anchored in your point of view. It's filtered through your lens. And that's what people want to hear. That's why they came to see you. And that's what all the great comics did. And, you know, again, Richard Pryor, that was his take. That's what he saw. I mean, it wasn't the average American in the 50s, the Eisenhower era, where it was Ozzie and Harriet and everything is so nice and everybody's getting washing machines and TVs and stuff. And he's out in the street. And that's what he talks about. It was like, whoa, that's what was really going on. But he made it hysterically funny, but had a point. Yeah, I think Mel Brooks called him a, a stand-up philosopher. Okay. <laughs> the bits on SNL are worth looking at. Like his, uh, in 75, the Exorcist bit with Lorraine Newman. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the bed's on my foot. And it was just, you know, the two priests. And there's some good bits in there, man. He, he, was, he was good on that show, man. It was, it was a funny skit performer. Well, he has that famous bit on there that we can't even mainly discuss on this show with Chevy Chase. Oh, that, yeah. And I guess that, that's the one Paul Mooney wrote. Mm-hmm. It, it's beautiful. I mean, it's... Uh, it's on there. And talk about controversial. I mean, that had to be, what, like 1975, mm-hmm. 76? Well, the first, I think it was the first season of Saturday Night Live because that's the only season I think Chevy Chase was on the show. And you do this on, even though it was after 1130 at night, still... 
Oh, know, the job. It's a job interview bit we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. It's on NBC. Mm-hmm. I mean, national television. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. I can't confirm or deny this, but I think one of the reasons why we've changed our format of this uh, season is because we wanted to do Richard Pryor and there's nothing of his classic <laughs> album we can no. play of his. <laughs> I mean, that's just sort of how, uh, how his language was, but it, it certainly all is worth looking into if you, if, there's anyone listening to this who hasn't heard that stuff. They they need to go back. You need to go back. Yeah, it's and not for to the it. squeamish. Yeah. Okay. You don't listen it's to it not, with your kids in the car. Don't. Yeah. You know. <laughs> don't, don't put on a pair of earplugs, yeah. earbuds, and listen to it. It's the kind of material like as again as a former like a club manager. It's the kind of thing after the show someone will say, "I need to see the manager." <laughs> and you go, go, We're offended by what he said. Well, you should you know read the ads for mature audiences only. That's definitely Richard Pryor. We didn't talk much about his films later, but he did a lot of films. And oh, yeah. uh, the one which I kind of liked was this JoJo Dancer, Your Life is Calling, because it was really personal. Yeah, he wrote he, it, didn't he? He yeah, wrote it, he directed, directed it, produced it, it, whatever. And he's, uh, you know, as someone who's, you know, I've, I've directed films, and I think that watching, it was, you know, he's. I think he could have been a great director as well. I, I think that film had moments where it was like, because it was kind of a drama. It was a very personal film, but uh, I thought, man, you know, nice direction. Nice, he, you know, he, he was good, man. And, you know, I think his stand-up is probably what everybody will remember him for, obviously, because Jojo Dancer, no one even talks about her, or Which Way Is Up. I think uh, Silver Street and Stir Crazy, those are- Those are well-known. He's funny, and he's good in those, but uh, his concert films are, are it. Probably. But you know, we talk about him, you know, possibly being a director and act. You know, he had a lot of demons. He yes. really did. And the things I've read about him, again, like he missed an appearance on the Ed Sullivan show because he was Oops. drugged out. When he got his big paychecks in Las Vegas, you know, what did it go for? <laughs> it was wine, women, and song. Okay. Yeah. And, Piles and, of blow. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it was just like he lost so much time. And again, even setting himself on fire. And when he came back, you know, people have said he was never really the same when he came back. I mean, he had that great special that we're talking about. He was so funny. Even ends it. He says, thank you for your love. I know everyone's here. You know, thank you for coming out. But I also know the nasty stuff you were saying behind my back. <laughs> All the jokes. And then he did that joke where he lit the match and he holds it. He says, see, Richard Pryor running down the street. Then he says, thank you. Good night. And he gets off stage. And after that, he kind of went downhill fast. Well, yeah. He, even in 1986, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Oh, yeah. Came word. Yeah, he, it's a pretty devastating diagnosis. And he still continued to perform afterwards, but it was rough, you know? In a wheelchair, right? Yeah, in a yeah wheelchair. but I, I heard some of it was pretty bad. They would lead him on stage and he oh, could just boy. talk for a little bit. Then he'd have to leave. There were one or two performances they said, well, he really picked up. And it was like the, almost like the old Richard Pryor. But for the most part, it was just like, let the audience see him for 10, 15 minutes, then get him off stage. Mm-hmm. No stamina. And, I mean, yeah. It yeah. Yeah, no energy. It was gone. It was yeah. depleted. Yeah. Well, despite all that, though, I mean, he did, um, 1998, he received his first, the the first ever recipient of the, the Kennedy Senator Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, which is a, a pretty big deal for, you know, comedy now. I mean, like I Emmys, said, he was being he Grammys. I mean, he, he really, he had a, critically, he, he was winning all the awards, but yeah, he personally, he had a really rough time. They, they, people got to look back. I mean, if you're 20 something years old and you, you know, your idol is, and I can understand this, Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock or, you know, I mean, current guys and they're amazing. I mean, Chappelle is amazing. Uh, but like as Dave, you mentioned, you know, there wouldn't be a Chappelle, you know, or Chris Rock. 
really without Richard. And uh, people sh- could dig back and, and look at some of that stuff. And you can learn from it. And it's it's just amazing. And he was uh, like no other star, comedy star at the time. He was a rocket. The biggest star, I think, in Hollywood or on the circuit in, in 70s, for sure. Things influence each other. And he was a major one, Richard And Pryor. he influences, you know, I mean, as a painter and an artist, I mean, I just, he influenced me as well. I mean, I, he's, you know, people go, oh, what artist influences you? Well, no, it's it's guys like Richard Pryor. People like, I mean, it's it's creative people. Yes. That, that just create worlds and scenes and stories. That's what I love. Well, they take a chance and they go out on the edge. He did take a lot of chances. And he opened up his, his in, in, you know, opened it up for people to see. And it was, you know, hilarious, obviously. But uh, I think, uh, you know, through that opening up, comedy is truth a lot of times. There's, mm-hmm. you know, there's, when you're you're laughing, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's, that's real. Actually, that's truthful. That's honest. I'll be honest right now. I think we're out of time. What? You oh. just got started, Dave. <laughs> you know, this Richard Pryor, this is like a 10-episode series here is what we should have because there's so much to talk about. He did so much. He was so important in the comedy industry, but we just touched on it today. Go look it up, kids. Go look it up, kids. Anyway, listen, I'm going to say thank you to both of you. Kelly Oh, Thulis, my gosh. Oh, thanks thank for having you. me. And Tom McGallis. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's always fun to talk with you guys. All right. I'm Dave Schwentz, and you've been listening to What's So Funny. And until we come back next time, keep laughing. What's So Funny is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya, producer Sarah Wilgroup, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.